Welcome to the Hashtag Call to Scene podcast, the show focused on the strategic disruption of the status quo in technical organizations, communities, and events. Hello, everyone. This is Kim Creighton from the Hashtag Call to Scene movement, and it is my extreme pleasure to welcome today's guest, Coraline. Coraline, would you please introduce yourself? My name is Coraline Ada Emke. I am a software developer with over 20 years of experience developing apps for the web. I am a writer. I am an activist. I'm an international speaker, and I am so pleased to be on the show today. I'm very pleased to have you on the show today. Um, I've been looking forward to this conversation for some time. So we always start by asking our guests, why is it important to cause a scene and how are you causing a scene? Okay. Um, well, what I do is I try to use technology to transform the lives of marginalized people, all while living as an unapologetic and very visible transgender woman. And why I think that's important is because tech is a field that can really transform someone's life. And I want to work to make sure and leverage my privilege as much as possible to make sure that as many people as possible have the opportunity to get into our field and more importantly, to be supported enough that they will stay in our field. That's, that's those two things. It's like the, we, just getting them in there is only one hurdle. It's getting, keeping them there is the second one. So tell us, how are you causing a scene? Well, um, I believe in working um, in the areas where I will be most effective. And since I spend so much of my time and so much of my professional career doing software development, that's where I focus on helping marginalized people because there's a lot that I can do with my seniority and with my privilege to open the door to more people and to make people feel supported. So um, one of the ways that this manifests, um, I believe in open source software as a great way of giving back to the community. The internet runs on open source software. And I think that open source can really open the door um, to a lot of early career developers and give them opportunities to learn and grow. But the status quo in open source communities is terrible. It is dominated by white men with poor social skills and no thoughts towards social justice issues. So I saw that as a problem. And about four years ago, four or five years ago, I created the first code of conduct for open source communities. It's called Contributor Covenant. It has um, been wildly successful. It's been adopted by over 40,000 open source projects. Wow. Wow. Let me stop you. I'm going to stop and applaud you for that because that that means something. Yeah. And every piece of open source software that Google, Apple, and Microsoft produce is all governed by the Contributor Covenant as well as a lot of very prominent other open source projects. So um, that's a first step, right? Like a, a code of conduct does a few different things. It lets a community be very specific about what their goals and mores and values are. And that can be a signal to a marginalized person that, hey, the maintainers of this project at least intend this to be a safe space. So that's like a first step toward diversifying and including more people in open source. There's obviously a lot of work that has to follow on that, but even getting that first step is often a fight. 
I'm happy you mentioned that because so many people think codes of conduct are the be all and end all. And I'm like, no, codes of conduct are reactionary. And there's some things you need to do once that's in place. It's the bare minimum that you need to do to ensure yeah, that the community. Yeah, it's like people think, oh, okay, I have a code of conduct. And I'm like, no, no, there is just like the bare minimum of what it takes. That's just something in writing. How do you enforce it? How do you communicate it? How do you do all those things that, that let marginalized individuals? Um, and I'm not even going to say marginalized, like everybody. That's why I like yeah. um, how I define inclusion because this is about experience. So how everybody um, feels safe and supported because although open source is majority white men, there are a number of white men who don't get, who don't um, actively participate in some open source projects for the very reason that they don't feel safe, that they even yeah. don't feel safe. They, you know, they are ridiculed and they're, um, they're belittled and condescended to. And, and so um, that's a huge, and it's so funny because I read that last year, I read your code and I did not know you at the time. Yeah. So it's great to put a, put a name to a face. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, because I know you're a bit nervous and I want to make sure that you are taken care of. I'm going to drive this a little bit because there's a reason, there's some reasons why I wanted you on the show. Um, and it was, I'm going to be honest, less about what you do in tech and how you show up in tech. You yeah, are okay. a person who's um, very much respected in tech from a lot of different marginalized communities. People of color respect you. People on the LGBTQ community respect you. People in communities with disabilities respect you. So I definitely wanted to hear you, have you share your story um, on this show. And I th one of the things that really, that you came to the forefront was um, I've been, I've been intentionally and strategically, I don't know how strategic I'm going to be about this. I can be honest because I'm, it's all new to me of understanding the uh, experiences of trans individuals and how they're being, um, just, I, I, it, it just almost brings me to tears. Cause it's like, it, it's, it's beyond discrimination. People are being slaughtered, um, yeah. for, for, wanting to show up as themselves in, um, in the world. And I can tell you that, um, so I, I, I am not a stranger to trans, to transgender because um, one of my early careers was when I lived in Chicago, there was a physician who um, he was the, he provided the services for pre-op transgender. So he had the counseling services there to people came for um, their medications and, and that kind of thing. So I um, was very familiar with the medical side of it. So I've never yeah. been like, sh like surprised by it. It's the, it's the social side of it that I'm really just like thrown by now, because that was something that I did not know about. Um, maybe it was just my, I was young and naive and didn't care, but where I, I bring, I, I'm bringing this around because I, I see tech as a microcosm of the macrocosm of our society. Um, as small as tech is, I've encountered very many transgender individuals in this community. Um, and it's something that, and I don't, I'm trying to be careful here because I, as a black woman, don't want to put emotional, people put emotional labor on me. But I just want, if you're, if you're willing, and it's okay if you say no, I won't cut it out, but if you're willing, just to talk about what it's, 
what this experience is like, because many people will never have a conversation with a transgender individual. And I really would like to, and I know you can't speak to transgender women or men of color, but as a transgender woman, um, could you speak about that? And, and, and what, what dangers do you find and how can tech and individuals in tech help to make you and your community feel safe? I guess that's just the long way of asking that question. <laughs> sure. That's a, that's a very big question. And um, I have to point out too that um, I am um, a middle-aged woman. I'm going to turn 47 later this year. And so a lot of my experiences are also different from younger transgender people um, because of the different climate in which I grew up. I grew up in a town of 500 people in rural Virginia. And it was a predominantly black community. It was segregated by tradition. There was a side of town where the black folks lived and there's a side of town where the white people lived. And um, it was a very racially charged environment. There's a lot of racism. There's a lot of distrust. Um, and there was absolutely like the worst thing that you could be called, um, as, as a person living in a community like that was gay or queer. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, mm -hmm. and there wasn't even a word that I was aware of for who I was. I knew from a very early age that I was not a boy, but I didn't know what I was. There were no examples in the media of people like me. I didn't have a vocabulary for understanding who I was. And I didn't even learn the word transgender until I was maybe 20 years old. Wow. And that's a very different environment from the environment that people coming up now are in, where there are positive role models and there is this established tradition of how you go about transitioning and different kinds of support mechanisms. So everything that I say is through this, this different lens of having come up with a level of oppression that isn't exactly reflected in the world today. Okay. So um, I, I was raised to hate myself. I was raised to think that I was an aberration, that there was something wrong with me, and that I would never achieve happiness in my life. Um, that's, that's what I grew up with. And, um, I'm going to stop you right there. Is it yeah. because you, what am I, is it because, um, it was a, just a homophobic environment or at that time you knew you may be gay and, or people thought you may be gay and then they directed at you. So I'm trying to figure out if that self hate was just what the community was or was it directed at you? Both. Okay. Um, I was very, very bad at living as a male. Um, it never came naturally to me. And I knew it wasn't me, but I didn't know what I was. There, I didn't have a word for what I was. And people assumed that I was, that I was gay sometimes because I was exhibiting a mixture of traits that are normally associated with, with males as well as females because I was trying to figure out, figure out where I fit. And... Um, I was not a gay man. I never. I was never a homosexual man when I was living as a man. Um, so that label that was often ascribed to me wasn't wasn't accurate either. Mm -hmm. And you have to understand that the only media representation of gender nonconforming people when I was growing up 
was on, you know, Jerry Springer or Phil Donahue or something like that. And it, there were these people who were parodies. Mm-hmm. They were not, they were, they were individuals who were laughed at, who were mocked and who, who, who weren't serving as role models for people who had the kind of feelings that I had. So I, I literally thought I was the only person in the world like me. Wow. And a lot of that was a result of where I grew up. I'm sure if I'd grown up in an urban environment, maybe I would have been exposed to a different set of, of standards or values or, or ways of looking at the world. But, uh, but for my circumstances, I, I, I thought I was an aberration. Well, that must be another, another level of loneliness that I have no idea what that's like. Yeah, it was very lonely and it was so taboo to even talk about. And um, when I did come to the realization that there was a word for, for what I was, that that word was transgender, I was in my 20s. And um, at age 23, I made the very difficult decision of coming out to my friends and I actually was ready to start my transition. And then I found out that the girl I had been dated was pregnant. And um, we needed to get married so that she would have insurance to have the baby. And I wanted to be a part of my baby's life. And I didn't think I could do both things. So mm-hmm. I put it off. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't start my transition until my early 40s. Um, wow. So that's like 20 years. Yeah. And that... That was a hellish twenty years. That was twenty years of de- of denying myself. So that even once I knew what I was and was coming to terms with who I was, I still wasn't allowed to express that. I still had to hide, mm-hmm. and that was my deepest, darkest secret. And I think I became kind of hyper masculine during that period because I was so afraid of revealing anything that might clue people into the fact that I was not a man. Wow. Okay. That's, uh, I'm just taking all that in because that just, um, when I see the, the level of disdain and pushback that marginalized individuals receive about be it race or be it uh, um, sexual or gender identity, it's, you would think that these people, these other people think that our lives are easy, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. like we've made these choices because um, we didn't have anything else to do, you know, <laughs> yeah. um, um, like, oh, this is a, this is a, this is a, um, a, a bet or some party game and you decided to, um, decided to you that you wanted to transition in your 20s and because of circumstances you had to live 20 years without doing that and 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 then I look at um being a black woman and and the things that people say and do is like do you think if this was a choice (laughs) you know yeah um um hmm, wow all right I was talking to a friend of mine um who um is a Japanese American and we were talking about the kind of the kind of discrimination that we that we face as marginalized people and he talked about this really transformative moment in his life where he visited the site of one of the Japanese internment camps 
So the Jap- a lot of Japanese citizens, Japanese Americans were rounded up during World War II mm-hmm. camps. And he visited that and he, and he, he said it helped him kind of ground himself in his racial identity mm-hmm. and that there was this geography that he could, that he could rely on and lean on so that when he did face discrimination as a person of color, he could take pride in his heritage and feel his connection to his history. And um, it really struck me how different that experience is for me, because first of all, he had a lifetime of learning to cope with discrimination where my coping mechanisms were all kind of denial. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't really, and no one knew. So when I was being discriminated against, when I experienced sexism and homophobia and transphobia, nobody knew that they were having an effect on me because no one knew that I was trans. Mm-hmm. So I had no, I have no history of dealing with the kind of discrimination that I face as a transgender woman. And I don't have that kind of cultural centering that I think a person of color would have because there is no culture around transgender women. Yeah. Um, I can totally attest to that because whenever I get, I've actually created a video about it being down in the hometown where my dad's from, where my great grandfather um, um, actually swindled some white, a white man out (laughs) He was supposed to, he was supposed to, I don't know, some kind of way. He, he just swindled this white man out of 700 acres of land. I love it. And we still have that land. And so every time I think about, I get down, I think about where I come from because I, I have yeah. that land. I can put my, my, my toes in that sand and that dirt and know it's mine. Um, I totally get you with that. And, and I also talk about this, and this is why I do empathize with whiteness and privilege in a lot of what's going on in 2018 is because a lot of what is happening, you have no compass to deal with. A marginalized person, particularly a person of color um, in the United States, has been dealing with this all their lives. We, yeah. There's a way we have to go into the world. There's a way we, our parents prepare us to go out into the world. There's a way we act differently when it's all just us. And then there's a, if, if one person, white person enters that space, everybody changes. We've learned to make those, you know, code switching and all those other things. And for a lot of white people, um, our current climate, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say that the political 2016 was a demarcation mark for a lot of people because... Um, it was before then people were like, why are we talking about racism? We dealt with racism. We have a black president. What are you talking about? You know, they didn't see the, the, birth, the, the birth certificate stuff as racism. Everything that, that people of color have been talking about, they didn't see it until we, this president um, took office. And to find out that over 50% of his uh, women, white women, voted for him. And that yeah. has shocked a lot of white people because now, and I call it privilege and whiteness is a parasite and now it's eaten on its host. So for the first time, white people are having, or if not being subjected to this level of discrimination or actively seeing it for the first time, it's, n- it's not being hidden from you. Um, no one's trying to protect your feelings. People are recording everything. Um, this is why I don't block people on Twitter because people need to see 
what this is. Um, it's not about, about being comfortable anymore. And so that has to be, so what you're saying is not only were you hiding, but there were forces around you that were discriminating against you and you could not speak it because you could not raise your voice against it because due to the fact that you were hiding. Yeah. Wow. That's very true. That's very complex. And, 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 and I, I want to say why I'm digging into this because I need people to understand when I talk about inclusion, it's about experiences for everyone. And we can never make, just like what's going on with Twitter right now, we can never make um, marginalized individuals feel comfortable until we stop talking about equality. So we stop saying freedom of speech for everybody. Marginalized voices have to be put up in front of, ahead of privilege. And this goes to when um, the, the OSCON or the O'Reilly, that one, two, that was only two words that were added to their code of conduct, but it totally changed the feel and the safety for people to attend this, to attend these events because it was it's just like the Twitter thing with um, Alex, whatever his name is, um, Infowars. Oh, everybody's equal. If we if we all get in a room and we all say the same things, then the 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 sanity or the truth will prevail. And the research is showing that it does not happen that way. Yeah, and I I totally agree with you that we have to put the most vulnerable people first because there's a difference between equality and justice, right? And I, and I tell people. It, Inclusion is not about equality and it's not about quotas. Is and, and you yeah. hit it. It's about justice. Yeah, and uh, just for people who aren't aware, um, O'Reilly, the major tech publisher, has this giant open source conference called OzCon, and they snuck in. And I have information on this. They did not even tell the program chairs of OzCon they snuck in political affiliation as a protected class in their code of conduct. And I think it was Sage Sharp who first pointed it out. And I got right into the fight, right alongside of Sage, and went up against Tim O'Reilly, calling him out on that, because that that was some bullshit, frankly. Yeah, and, I, and I, my role was to amplify the, your voices, because I was learning, I was... Un- all I could do was retweet, comment, retweet, and keep going um, and gather as much information as I could because that was that his 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 um, explanation or it, I don't even know if it was an apology. It was just an explanation. It was not a. It was yeah. Not it was and and it was as if oh I didn't know this happened. Like someone behind his back did this. Like somebody on a whim decided to add this to because it's not just O'Reilly. I mean, Oscons. It was O'Reilly. So. It, it affected every conference that O'Reilly yeah. had. And I spoke at Fluent and had I known that or understood that, I would have probably made the same decision that you made not to attend. Um, yeah. Because I recognize that, and this is why I want to throw in feminism and the problems that I have with feminism and why women of color, particularly black women, are just really not interested in feminism, white feminism. It focuses on white femi- fem- feminism and 
and not all of us getting that together. So it's in tech, you see that only white women are making gains in tech. Only white women are getting jobs. But what you also see is they're not being treated any better. The, 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 pay, ga- the pay gap is not getting improving. None of that is happening because white women are moving, making moves on their own. And had, or oh, if they brought all of us together, we could all have a conversation from different perspectives of what's going on. Um, so although white women are making gains in tech, their experiences are not improving in tech. They're still being sexually harassed. They're still being all these other things that if it was more than one woman in the, in a, on a development team or in a tech company, you would have solidarity. And so with the, the O'Reilly's sneaking that in, and also I just, I just found it very disingenuous for him to, he didn't point out a specific person, but it was, oh, I didn't know this happened kind of thing. And it was like, dude, um, (laughs) you're a leader. The shit goes, rolls uphill. I mean. And he defended that on Twitter before, before the backlash. Yes. I really got rolling. He defended it on Twitter. So I don't. So what was his defense to that? The same is, was it similar to what Jack is saying about Twitter? Um, He was basically saying that politics I'm I'm really paraphrasing here, mm-hmm. but that you shouldn't attack someone based on their politics. But you can't tell someone, like, being transgender means that my very existence is political. Yeah. There yeah. are court cases deciding if I have rights to medical care. Yeah. Right? There are court cases deciding if I can use a public restroom. So you can't tell someone who is constantly under political attack that they can't lash out at political opponents. When that's your life, you cannot censor someone from seeking justice. Everyone in the hashtag call the scene community shares the same common beliefs based on a set of four specific guiding principles. One, tech is not neutral, nor is it apolitical. Two, intention without strategy is chaos. Three, Lack of inclusion is a risk and increasingly a crisis management issue. And lastly, but most importantly, four, we must prioritize the most vulnerable. To find out more about the guiding principles and adding them to your Twitter profile banner, please visit hashtag causeascene.com. Add political opponents. When that's your life, you cannot censor someone from seeking justice. And wasn't it a part of, for the first time, and this is why it kind of came up, was it was in some kind of speaker agreement? Yeah, it was both in the speaker agreement and the code of conduct. So Yeah, O'Reilly, I don't remember remember signing a speaker agreement, so I didn't see that. Yeah, that was one of the things they snuck in. Um, So uh, what was really problematic there is that by elevating it to the level of a protected class, he was putting... Republicans, neo-Nazis, alt-right, all of these people in the same sort of zone of protection and comfort as needs to be extended to marginalized people. Yeah, and yeah. This idea, and there, there are these three words that I hear, and I've even heard them at my company, and, and believe me, I raise a stink whenever someone uses these three words, and that is diversity of thought, and there is no such thing. That is not a level of diversity that anyone should be caring about because that is not, you are, you are not marginalized because of the way you think. You're not oppressed because of the way, because of 
because of your the opinions you hold. They're natural consequences of the opinions you hold and the things you say. And that's part of living in a society. But that, you know, being a conservative does not make you oppressed. That is just ridiculous. So could you, I've heard that term. Could you, since you've heard it at work and, and what does diversity of thought, how is it being defined? What do they mean by that? They mean people with differing opinions. And usually it means people with differing political opinions. And it's kind of a conservative dog whistle, right? Um, in the same way that free speech is weaponized against marginalized people. Um, as well as civility. The weaponization <laughs> of, of political thought. So it's saying, oh, we need to have this diversity of thought of, of, of everybody so that, so it's the same thing as what the political affiliation in the um, code of conduct was putting everything at the same level. Exactly. Okay. And that's extremely problematic, of course. Oh, most definitely. Um, and this is why um, the others, because uh, there are so many others, um, are challenged right now. And this is what I love about technology. And this is one of the things I do, as, as hard as it is, or as challenging and, and laborious and, and, and tiring as it is for me to um, challenge someone and challenge someone on Twitter, the fact that I actually can do that is amazing because for the first time, marginalized people, as long as I have an internet connection and a Twitter account, I have the same access as anybody else on that, on that platform. Yeah. And what happens is when you're talking about the diversity of thought, um, um, dog whistle, as you call it, uh, or the um, um, political affiliation, it's what happens when someone like me who is under attack constantly from people who are saying I'm race baiting, I'm, when, all I'm, when, when I'm, like today I posted a video that talks about how medicine uses race incorrectly um, for patients. And so it's like, I'm not always, I'm not race baiting. I'm not always talking about race. I didn't create this race thing, but there are so many different institutions that are using it to make decisions that further marginalize the people on the margins that I'm going to keep talking about this. And yet I will get, I get locked out of my account um, because someone attacks me and I'm saying, all I'm saying is, um, this, I'm tired of these, why are these random people who are not even at my talks making a comment? And I say, go play in traffic and I get locked out, but you have, um, Infowars who are making, sh I mean, just making shit up and you're saying, oh, well they have equal and it's journalists responsibility to vet this when the research is showing that it does not matter how much information these individuals get, they double down on what they believe and yeah. that's it. Yeah, that's very true. And I think that platforms like Twitter have a tremendous potential and they're being completely until they mismanaged. At the very, at best, they're being mismanaged and at worst, Jack they're complicit. He's complicit. Complicit. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll say that. He's complicit. Um, go ahead. <laughs> Especially when you hear about all these meetings he's having with these other individuals and he's not meeting yeah. with marginalized groups. Yeah, exactly. And I think part of that is capitalism. I think part of it is that Twitter, for whatever revenue they do get, is, um, is based on interactions, right? It's based on reach. It's based on the number of times that people are interacting with other people's tweets, and the right is highly organized. 
and they support each other. They support each other no matter what somebody does, right? Yep. yep. And so they're they're driving these engagement metrics, and engagement metrics are amoral. Talk about that. There's there are things that are immoral, which are like morally wrong, and there are things that are amoral where morality doesn't even figure into the equation. And I think that corporations at best are amoral where they're pursuing profits without questioning the morality of their actions. And then you have some corporations, like if you're running a private prison, well, that's an immoral act, right? But the majority of the participants in capitalism are not even factoring morality into the equation of what they're doing. And we see this reflected in software too, right? It's, it's software engineers who are developing algorithms that discriminate against people of color. It is software engineers who are deciding that the gender options on a forum should be male and female. These are, these are people who are making decisions and divorcing themselves from the consequences of their decisions. And in one of the talks that I give, I, uh, I make the point that if you are comfortable making weapons, then you would better be comfortable taking responsibility for the lives that are destroyed by the use of those weapons. And that kind of accountability is lacking in our field. Yes, yes. And, 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 it's, and it's because, one of the reasons is because I believe we've taught the greater public that we know everything, so they never question us, and they never, um, they don't, they assume that machines know everything because we've taught them that. They assume that the people creating this stuff if they are biased, it will be the bias will be removed somehow when it comes yeah. in contact with the machine. Um, and they they don't they we they think we're brilliant. They don't think that we we are human. They, it's like we extrapolate humanness out of all of this this technology stuff. It becomes down to the machine where even the machines, everything is created through the lens of a human being, through the perspective of a human being. And we need to. Uh, not only hold ourselves accountable for this, but also encourage the ge- the general public who will be affected by these things, as we saw with Cambridge Analytica and, and other things, um, by this, I mean, the assumption that these developers had that, oh, people wouldn't care that they had, that they were sharing their information or that people already knew what was going on. That was an assumption. But yeah. um, um, I, I, I want to get back to, because we were talking about the amoral part of this, it, that is so inherent in this, because one of the things we're talking about Twitter, when that day that they um, announced that they, over two months, they had closed down 550 million accounts and their stock share, their stock evaluation went down. These companies are not incentivized to make a safe space for um, marginalized groups. Even though the, the five, 50 million accounts that they took down were mostly bots and um, bad agents or bad actors, the people who buy the stock don't understand that. All they care about is the, the stock price. And so they lost tremendous amount of, of value in that day. And so you see that there is no incentive to clean some of these things up or to even hurry to clean any of these things up. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And that's that's a side effect of the capitalist society that we live in. And I think there's a greater question that I am not qualified to answer as to whether or not there can be justice in a capitalist society. I've been thinking about that, too, and I'm not there either. Um, I've been the question I've asked is I'm trying to think about how I, I was like, could capitalism in the absence of 
What was it? Because I think my thing is, could capitalism exist without oppressing other people? Yeah. That is, that is my, um, or could any of these um, systems exist? Is there such a thing of a economic system that can exist and thrive without the oppression of other people by paying people wages that they can live on by, you know, um, all these different things? Um, that's a question I definitely am not qualified to answer, but that's something I have been thinking about a lot recently. And I think it's really interesting in the early part of the 20th century, um, that's when a lot of these economic theories were being developed and these economic systems were being developed. And a huge player in that sort of experimentation of ideas was labor. It was organized labor. And um, it's organized labor that got us a 40-hour work week. It's organized labor that got us um, minimum wage. There were so many breakthroughs that came from organized labor in that time period. And organized labor today is a joke, right? Yeah. People, people look down on unions and corporations that are union busting. Um, but the other thing that the other point I wanted to make was we were experimenting back then, right? People were thinking about economics. People were thinking about politics. People were thinking about justice and they were mixing it up and they were trying to create something new that I think, and I, I think the oppression of marginalized people was very much on their minds, even if it wasn't exactly about race or gender or I, it was probably more class-based back, back at that point in time. That's what, that's what the, uh, the visible struggle was. Um, but at least people were talking about it and thinking about it and trying out different experiments. And when after World War II, when we got into the Cold War situation, it's like everyone forgot that capitalism and socialism and communism were not naturally occurring systems. They were systems that were invented by people trying to solve economic and political problems. And that we're not done with that question, right? There's no reason for us not to continue experimenting. There's no reason for us to stop being critical of those systems. And there's no reason for us to stop believing that we can create a system that is more just. I want to point out something. There's an American Experience episode called The Gilded Age that talks specifically to this, um, talks about um, um, Carnegie and uh, J.P. Morgan and, 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 you know, the the railroads and and how... um, J.P. Morgan actually had to bail the United States out. Um, and the question was, what, would it really, what does it really mean for one person to have that much um, power and, and, and income to bail out the entire United States? But one thing I do want to put on there as, a, as, a, as, a, as an extension that um, what you just expressed was from a very much a privileged view because although it was class for white people, it has always been race oh, definitely. Um, for black people. Yes. Particularly at that time, um, that's when you have the, um, the, the rise in lynchings, um, people moving to the North. Um, that's when you have the, the history of tipping, how that happened because people didn't want to pay black people. Um, and so, and this is what I- tried I, to allude to that by saying that the visible struggle- so what I what I meant by that was the struggles that people that 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 white Americans were aware of. Yes, exactly. Class struggle. Of course, all of these other struggles were happening in um, 
that there's a continuing history of those struggles happening and that's that struggle is still happening today even to the not enough degree that we talk yeah about. and that's why i wanted to bring it up because it's always this it's always been this thing that's been there it's always been there and and privilege and whiteness never had to really deal with it um yeah and it's now with the our um again with technology it's in your face all the time um, and it needs to be in your face all the time. And that's when people, uh, again, going back to the race, uh, race baiting question. No, this is just, this has been centuries of mistreatment um, and trying to annihilate a people if we weren't of economic value to you. And so you, when individuals, um, particularly blacks in the United States talk about race, it's time for white people to sit down and be quiet because there's a history. There's so, we couldn't, I could not sit down with all the hours in a day and talk about how much that white people have, do not know about or have chosen to ignore. Um, and this goes back to, again, when you're talking about um, um, diversity of thought. Um, no, we don't have the same. I, I know my voice needs to be elevated above um, the average white dude. I'm sorry, it just is. But I also recognize, and this is the point I want to get to and it comes back full circle, I also want to recognize that although Blacks and Black women are at the, and I say we're the moral compass of this country, but we're at the bottom of the visible totem pole. When I look at transgender individuals, I recognize that you are beneath us. And that's not meaning in any derogatory term, but you are further marginalized and in danger than we are. And that said, that's something to be said, uh, particularly women of color who are transgender. Um, and so that's one of the reasons I yeah. am trying to figure out how cause a scene can, can, I don't know, um, amplify, because I don't think, I definitely don't think it's our place or my place to speak, but how can I amplify? Um, and cause it goes back to what you just said, you know, it's the, it's the, the gilded age when everybody was talking about when whiteness was ignoring everything else right now, people of color are, are having, are having a voice and I don't want transgender people to be left out. I guess that's exactly yeah. what I don't want you. I don't want your voices to be left out. I think in the same way that you talked about how feminism left black women behind and other women of color behind, um, I think the LGBTQ movement, the LGBTQ rights movement also left um, black women and women of color behind. Um, you know, pride is a celebration of the Stonewall riots, right? Well, the first woman who threw a punch at Stonewall was a black lesbian drag king. Of course. And a woman who, <laughs> yeah. And uh, her name was uh, Sylvia, Sylvia Rivera. And um, the woman who's sort of the poster child for the riot, Marsha P. Johnson, was a black um, trans woman. And, um, and gay people in this country don't think about that. They don't think about those intersections. But to your other point about the totem pole, I don't think there's value in saying, in thinking about, like, comparing the... Uh, the lived experience of transgender people as distinct from people of color. I think that we share a lot of things in common. Yes. And speaking just as a transgender woman, even a white transgender woman, I find that 
I, I try to follow as many people of color on Twitter as possible um, and amplify their voices in the same way that you're talking about amplifying the voices of trans people and relate to them and try and understand them and do the work of internalizing the things that they're, that they're expressing. And I've made some very good friends um, through that process. And I feel like transgender women have more in common with women of color than yep. they do with cisgender white women. I agree. I think both transgender women and cisgender women of color are used to being second-class women. Mm-hmm. They're treated by society as second-class women. And so I think we are natural allies. And I, I think that we're kindred. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I guess, and, and I think you, you and I have DM'd about this because I really think that's true. And I think that's why my heart is so into... Um, because I'll never call myself an ally, um, but just amplifying and supporting where I can, um, because I do see the the um, connection. I see. Um, I, I feel. And I think. Yeah, I think we did talk about that. I bet I feel more connected with the, with with transgender women. I can tell you than white women. I just at this point I don't trust white women, but I have a great affinity for transgender women. Of, of, of any race and uh, particularly women, women of color. So I totally agree with you on that. Yeah, I think we're natural allies and we, and we should be working together. We absolutely should be working together. It, we should be building these bridges like, re- like you're doing today. It reminds me of when, um, the whole, when the whole race stuff happened, when you know, we made up, well, white people made up the term of white or whatever. It was out of a, out of a, a, a class issue when white, after, the, of the, after um, slavery, are, started to see that their experiences were not much better or even worse than blacks or free slaves. And when um, whites in power saw that there was an allegiance being created, then all of a sudden the Italians, whatever, everybody became white instead of yeah. their, um, and this is, I think this is the, oh, this is a great conversation. Cause I think we're at that moment now with um, women of color and transgender women. We're at the point where we both see the value in connecting and going together. And this is where traditional feminism has left out. Uh, particularly I've been being, being, um, this is so disheartening, but I've been reading about and un- trying to understand this 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 feminist part that it has that what's that acronym? It's T. Yeah, um, trans exclusionary radical feminist. Yeah, I, I I don't get that. But then again, I don't get why blacks were left out of suffrage movement or blacks were left out of the feminist movement. I don't understand why your very existence is so why they're so. It's not even that they are don't agree. They're actually violent and 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 I don't even know another word. They're just it's just so viscerally <sighs> negative. Is it's, it's it's they want I I feel now maybe I'm getting this wrong but from what I've seen they want you not to exist. Yeah, and and beyond that they they say that we do not exist. And they work to legislate their opinion that we do not exist. They, they literally say transgender women are men. And that is a basic denial of identity and humanity. Yeah, exactly. It, dem- it, it denies the, the years of 
what it took for you to stand in your own truth and become who you are. Um, and, and, and that's what I don't, and I guess that's, I, I'll never get it. Cause I don't understand this whole, if, if, if this thing is included, then that's less of, of the pie for me or something. I just, it, it goes back to why marginalized people are marginalized um, beyond the economic um, and the free labor or whatever. It's, I don't understand why including the race thing I get, they didn't want to have the conversation because most of them have to admit that they're white supremacists. So I get that. And beyond the Christianity thing, I guess, if if we're all, if, okay, I guess what I'm saying, if the larger, I mean, this is a subsect of the larger community. This, not, this is LGBTQ are themselves <laughs> marginalized. So to further marginalize individuals who are in this community, I just do not get it. I think there's a tremendous pressure being placed on people to subdivide into tribes. And I think that at, that by doing so, we are actually playing with the hands of our oppressors. Because like you said about the, about the definition of white being expanded to cover Italians and Jewish people and so on, um, the powers that be know how dangerous it would be if transgender women and cisgender women and women of color and people of color in general all came together because we would overthrow them. Yeah. We, we, out, we outmeasure them in all numbers. <laughs> yeah. If we're able to get our shit together and come together as, as kin, we could overthrow them and that terrifies them. And what, and we're resorting it, and it's infuriating. We're we're resorting to breaking ourselves down into smaller and smaller and smaller identity groups, and that that just runs so counter to the idea of intersectionality. And I think that intersectionality is the only way we win this war. Yeah, it speaks to um, what I talk about with civility. When I really started understanding and breaking down what civility meant. And for me, just seeing it in practice, civility for white people is optional. So they they decide if they want to be polite or if they want to take turns. But for marginalized people, civility is a weapon or a tool or a system for us to manage our own behavior. So now it talks, speaks to what you just said. If I'm managing my own behavior, that's something that privilege um, at the highest levels don't have to worry about because I'm making sure I'm doing these things that is not causing um, causing a scene. Um, whereas, I mean, just walking down the street, I, 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 I do it intentionally now. It is, if you, if I want people to notice, just take a moment when you're out and about, when you see people of color and how we walk down the street, and if you're white, how you walk down a sidewalk, see how much space you take up when you walk down a sidewalk and how often people of color, particularly women of color, will sidestep or wait till you pass or, or walk, even walk in the street to, so that you can keep up that space. Well, I'm not doing that anymore. If I'm walking in a straight line and you are walking and you're talking with your friends or you're not paying attention or if I'm, period, if I'm white, we're going to make body contact because I deserve the same amount of space as you deserve. And this goes back to why I'm so happy you're on the show today because I want to let this audience know that hashtag cause it seen is taking up space for transgender women. Um, I don't know what that's going to look like, but um, it's going to be beyond. At this point, it's an intention. 
Um, the strategy will come at some point, but I am committed to making sure that that kinship is a part of this movement because we have to, when we move together, we we're unstoppable. I could not agree more. That's a beautiful, that's a beautiful sentiment. And I really appreciate what I've seen from you over the past. I guess we've been, you and I have been interacting online for maybe a month now. And uh, you've been asking questions and you've been doing your research. And I'm seeing that from you. I'm seeing you um, come to an understanding and seeing the similarities and figuring out how we can come together to make a change and um, that's why I was so excited to come on your podcast today. And I really appreciate that opportunity. Thank you so much, Kim. Well, thank you. And also, what aren't, I mean, am I, am I disclosing anything? Because aren't you going to be speaking at Hashtag Cause of Scene London? Conference London? Yes, I am. Yay! <laughs> I'm so excited about that. I am so, okay, everybody. So, um, Coraline is our first confirmed speaker for a Hashtag Cause of Scene conference in London for October 22nd and 23rd. So, thank you so much. I am so excited um, to share a stage with you. I cannot wait. So um, as we close up, are there any um, last words you have to, um, you would like to share? Um, the, as, as you alluded to at the beginning, um, I am transgender, but I'm also a white woman. And I can only speak to the experience of being transgender as a white woman. Um, the life expectancy, the average life expectancy of a transgender woman of color is about 35 years old. And most of the murders of transgender people that we see in this country, um, and they come at one or two a month, are transgender women of color. So um, I just want people to realize that for all the struggles that I've been through, and for as difficult as my daily life is, and the things that I face, that they should also be listening to transgender women of color because compared to them, I'm, leaving, I'm leading a charmed life. And that's to say something <laughs> that 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 says something with all the challenges you have to say that you're leading a charm life. So with that, um, I thank you so much, and I hope um, I created a safe space um, for you. And I really appreciate you taking the time and um, sharing your experiences and your insights with the community. Thank you so much. All right, have a great day. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Hashtag Cause of Scene podcast. And I'd like to thank all our current sponsors of the podcast and the Hashtag Cause of Scene movement. Of course, we strongly encourage everyone to become an individual sponsor of the Hashtag Cause of Scene community. Just visit the website at HashtagCauseofScene.com to sign up today. On behalf of everyone here at Hashtag Cause of Scene, we'd like to thank you again for listening to today's show and have a wonderful day.